Hello. This is the AMA number two, meaning Ask Me Anything, number two, of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Danny. The static state. I could sit here and drone on to you with some Fitzgerald-esque text like I usually do, but that would be counterintuitive to the contents of this post. Your autopilot needs to be controlled, and you're going to feel parallels between your truly present self and the next moment it's available, and all the previous moments in which you receive true silence. Autopilots are inevitable. Presence is limited. If we've trained our autopilots for un- unprepared upward trajectory, then we'll reach these moments of silence, of parallels of the past and potentially the future looking back on us then we'll have created an organic machine towards targeted manifestation. Alignment in these moments is imperative. If you do not take these breathers to align, you will head somewhere you do not want to go. Do not fall in love with tragedy, unceasingly adore victory. Make Logos your three-dimensional North Star. The static state will no longer be enemy territory. Time will go by quickly and slowly, simultaneously. Now, with that, let's give some fuel to do just that. Alright, now let's dive into your fantastic questions that you all released. You know, you guys are really, really shy when I first ask. You know, I don't hear anything from you guys. I hear one or two, and then I say, hey, stop being so shy on the floodgates release, so... Again, I'm not that unapproachable, guys. So, first question is, B. Thomas 3, how to make your voice deeper? Um, Alright, this one's an interesting one. Now, your voice is only going to be capable of being so deep, just in the voice box you're given, but there are certain attributes that you can sort of enhance to make your voice as deep as it possibly can be. My singing voice is actually a tenor, so I have a, I sit in a higher register, um, but I have a lot of timbre from what's called the chest voice, so actually this is a little bit of interesting vocal technique here. When I was in drama school, I, um, I was speaking too much with, with what's called my head voice. Now, I'm speaking with a combined chest and head voice to have my full balanced speaking voice. So let's, if I tried to go all chest voice, speaking completely with my chest, I can speak even lower. But it's actually not natural because it's gonna be pressing down too much my larynx and it's actually gonna be causing what are called vocal nodules. So on your vocal folds, they're not chords, they only call them chords because people in the classical musical era just assume that were the voices that they have these little chords just like instruments and they're really just called vocal folds. You'll do irreparable damage to your vocal folds with something called vocal nodules and that's what you don't want. So, the other thing, so sorry, so that's putting pressing on your chest voice too much. Now if I just spoke in my head voice, you know, all the way up here, I'm using primarily the the register from my head, I'm just using, you know, um, I'm using just the mask of my nose and mouth, and it's going to be higher. But the balance is in between. 
So you need just the right amount of head voice and just the right amount of chest voice. Now, if you're not supporting your voice from the diaphragm, you can have what are like what you get with a lot of Californians, like what we fry. Um, yeah, I'm kind of lazy when I speak, and yeah, yeah, it's exactly what you don't want. Um, so you don't want too high up here because you're just using your head voice and you're not supporting and not breathing for the diaphragm or even worse vocal fry um, you also don't want to press too low down here um, because any of those are going to have severe vocal damage consequences when I was in drama school I wasn't using enough of my chest voice so I, I actually weaved in and out of vocal fry and too much head voice until a voice teacher actually just straight up yelled at me to use more uh, Use more chest voice, and that's where my natural voice sits now, which you hear predominantly on the Blueprint Podcast. Now, the other thing is, uh, if your testosterone is diminishing, if you have low testosterone levels, your voice is naturally going to go higher. So if you boost your testosterone by doing the stuff that Primal Thrive and I uh, enhance in our coursework for you guys, um, you're going to be actually hitting your natural voice, which is your voice as a man. Um, with your optimum testosterone, combined with the proper vocal technique of where your voice sits. So that's to go down the little rabbit hole of vocal technique. Thank you so much for that question. And our next question. At the very beginning, from Dusty Bones. I train grappling primarily. Is daily shadow boxing sufficient for striking proficiency? So this is a good question. Um, one of my main coaches, who's a world champion and European champion, he actually ranked for me what's the most important in terms of training. Now, he puts sparring first and foremost as the most important, but not, you know, beating each other to absolute fucking bits. Uh, I'm trying not to curse, so. It's, uh, it's kind of tight enough that speech. But yeah, you're not blasting each other to bits and giving each other permanent brain damage before you even step on a ring or something where the fight actually matters. Now, you do a lot of technical spar. Um, technical spar every single day. Very, very, very light. You want to upgrade the hardware without damaging the software. Um, so, but then rank number two was not bag work, was not footwork drills, is not, you know, strength and conditioning, was shadow boxing. Now, shadow boxing is definitely probably the most boring at first um, aspect of learning a combat sport. However, um, I would argue it's the most important because it's where your technique's going to improve the most. Um, so my recommendation, if you're a grappler and you're just trying to learn um, striking, uh, I would basically piece together combinations. I can actually, I can actually send you some. I'll include them in the show notes. For real this time, guys. I'll include them in the show notes. Um, some combinations. So that way you can actually practice these in a more holistic sense. I see a lot of guys shadow boxing and drilling, like shadow boxing a jab 10,000 times, and then the technique actually gets compromised because they're not really focusing enough because they're doing the same the same strike a thousand times in a boring shadow box uh, modality. So that's what we don't want. We want technique performed correctly for repetition until it becomes second nature in a holistic environment and a holistic methodology which would be throwing in combinations. So I would say you can learn great technique 
from shadow boxing. But you're not going to be a full service striker if you don't have bag work, you don't have pad work, and you don't have sparring. Um, a lot of people underutilize the bag. They sort of wait just to do pads. Um, you're going to know if your strike is being thrown correctly from the work you've done, you've done shadow boxing by the response you get from the bag. Now, if the, if the bag isn't moving in the correct direction uh, of your strike, then you didn't really throw the strike effectively enough. Um, the bag is an amazing tool for call and response. Uh, if you threw a strike poorly, then you could follow up with a better thrown, safer strike. Um, I would say the bag is certainly underutilized. But to answer your question fully, um, striking proficiency can't just be learned in shadow boxing. However, high, high, high proficiency in technique can be done from shadow boxing. When I had to go months without a bag, um, I found that my the strength of my strikes and the strength of you know certain muscles on my shoulders was lacking um, from not having hit the bag in a while. So that took some time to build back up. But my movement itself, from having just been able to do shadow boxing, my technique absolutely skyrocketed. Uh, another question from B. Tomas Three: I want to get into martial arts. How do you get started? Um, well. I would say the best thing to do is find the highest quality gym in your area. Uh, first of all, figure out which martial art you'd want to start first. Now, I typically actually recommend people do jujitsu before anything because jujitsu is sort of the most accessible. Um, you burn the most calories in a round of jujitsu, um, and you can drill it at a high intensity without brain damage. Um, so I would. For me personally, but if you're really, you know, someone like me who really wanted to get into striking, really wanted to get into Muay Thai, I would find the highest level gym near you, um, approach it with respect, and approach it with discipline, humility, and intensity, and I would just let the instructors mold you. I would do that for about three months, and then I would start take, I would start watching fights. And start noticing, start watching fighters with your physical attributes, with your height, with your proportions. With uh, by then you'll know where your some of your more, more powerful strikes come from. Find a similar fighter and develop your style accordingly uh, to that fighter, or with the base that your instructor has given you. And then also beyond that, make it your own. Um, if if I had if someone had to ask me. Um, what strikers I fight most like? Uh, it's sort of a hodgepodge now because I've, I've stolen from fighters who, whether in physical attributes or whether in personality or mindset, have a similar essence to me. Um, I, I've cultivated their striking styles to be what make up my striking style. To be perfectly honest, the striker whose mentality that I both that I most embody is a toss-up between Rob Kamen and Valentina Shevchenko. Both are very tactical fighters with two or three responses and counters for every scenario. In terms of the technique itself, um, closer and when it comes to my jab, I, I completely 100 1,000% stole the jab of Alexander Usyk. Um, the Ukrainian cruiserweight, now heavyweight boxer. I, I always had trouble with my jab. I, I could throw proficient jabs, but it had seemed to me that people had found a jab that truly suited them. And it was a, a weapon that they truly loved. I, I, 
seen very I've seen people throw jabs like Andre Ward, I've seen people throw jabs like Riddick Bowe, um, but I wasn't very happy with sort of this bludgeoning jab. I wanted something with a bit more finesse and a bit more versatility. So what I loved about Alexander Usyk's jab is it's that of a rapier. If you notice, he throws he throws pawing punches, so sort of throws softer jabs in your face, and as soon as you trust your defenses, he sticks you right in the face, and then he'll stick you in the face, then a jab to the body, and then he'll actually do somewhat of like a, a front-facing overhand. So he has like this three-point jab, so jab to the face, jab to the, jab to the body, and then almost an overhand jab to a different part of the face. Um, that swordsman style, having come from a fencing background, was something that I really resonated with. So that's where I got my jab from. In terms of my, um, in terms of my kicking, uh, my kicking's kind of all over the place. Uh, I kick, I, I I will kick in a more Thai style, and I will kick in a more Dutch style. Um, for the Thai style, I kick. Uh, I modeled after Boakau. Um, especially coming off the clinch exit when he when he pushes and he actually tries to follow up with the front the front side left kick or sorry the front side head kick. Um, so when I want to kick Thai, I kick like Buakau. That's what I've tried to model things off of. When I kick um, when I kick more Dutch, um, I'm I would say I probably modeled it mostly after uh, Rico Verhoeven. Um, but tying everything together, the mindset and the strategy is... Uh, and uh, the other one is um, uh, Jérôme Levanet, uh, Frenchman. But in terms of mindset and in terms of tactics, I modeled it off, off of uh, Rob Kamen and Valentina Shevchenko. Um, so it's a recap. I, I gave you... And so I'll, I'll scale it back down as well. So that's where I got to. I started in a gym in London that um, actually started me very, very Thai, not very European at all. And actually, when I came back to America, I had a European coach who wound up moving. Um, but I learned a very rotational Dutch Dutch style, and he had some practice with Savat, so um, very elusive uh, French style as well. Um, so those were the two coaches that I had, and then in terms of application, that's when my, my own personal study um, came into play. The differences between my, my coaches, or I would say probably my, my coach in America wound up having even more influence than my coaches in England. Um, my coach in America, um, his best attributes were, in terms of his punches, were his hooks, mine were my overhands. Um, his were his body kicks, mine were my low kicks. Um, he threw more, actually him and I pretty much threw the same elbows, but in terms of knees, he was more of a, he was more of a round knee guy and I was more of a spear knee guy. When it came to the clinch, when it came to from, from distance or from the pocket, uh, him and I both were more spear knee guys as opposed to rotational knees. So I, I learned these techniques from him, but he, he also noticed that we, him and I had different body types, so we threw the same strikes the same way, but we use more some strikes more than others. Um, so the rhythm and application was different. And then in terms of tactics, that was completely my own from just studying others. So to recap, find a gym, let them mold you. But find find the best gym possible near you. Let them mold you. 
and then start looking up fighters, whether they be in jiu-jitsu or whether they be in striking, who have similar personality, similar physical attributes. Um, you know, fighters that really resonate. It's kind of a similar thing with acting. Um, I found that the acting style that I, I use is closest to Christian Bale. Um, there were other actors I really liked and other actors who I wanted to copy from. Um, but I found like the really the best fit was Christian Bale, and that was the comparison. That was the closest comparison I was given to by my instructors in drama school. So I did the same thing in fighting. Um, I don't know how many people actually do that, uh, but that would be my recommendation. And the next question. When did you start writing from Euler94? Uh, I started writing pretty young. Um, those, I went to a private school growing up that was really, really intense and really academic. Um, so I started writing at an okay level, like at around 10. Um, I, was, I was actually, I wasn't really good at it. Um, no one really taught me how to properly write, how to properly get into writing up until I, uh, I was in my sophomore year of high school. Um, actually, uh, I, I dropped this post today about Kurt Cobain um, and about the time that I learned how to love to write. Um, I came off of my, the most, the, the worst summer of my life. Um, very intense summer. A lot of tragedy happened. A lot of trauma happened. A lot of which I was way too young for. And, I mean, relative to, you know, California, I'm sure, you know, kids in Syria are going to be way worse at a much younger age. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped to deal with these kinds of things. Um, and I came to my sophomore year of high school and I had an amazing English teacher really transformed my understanding of writing and taught me how to love to write. So I, was, I had just turned 15. Um, and he taught me how to write, he taught me how to love to write, but he also inadvertently taught me how to bleed at the typewriter, as anybody says. Just bleed out my traumas and sorrows into writing. Um, and it began to develop voice. So I started writing at 15, on and off. Um, when I was in a, when I was in one high school, I wrote a lot. When I was in another high school, I had, you know, I was doing more with performance, and I was more sociable in my second high school, so I had less time to myself to write. Um, I wrote a lot in college, in drama school. Uh, when I got more into fighting, I stopped writing, which, you know, really, in hindsight, doesn't make any sense. Um, but I really came back to it, uh, I would say, 2019. Actually, no, 2018. 2018 when I when I wrote Blood Rain, the, the first poem. Um, that was April 2018, so three years ago. Um, yeah, that's when I started writing. So I started writing at 10, kind of okay, but uh, I, I don't want to be one of those people who says you need to go through hardship to be a good artist, but I'd be lying if, if I said that didn't transform me as a writer um, combined with the guidance from, um, from my teacher. Uh, my sophomore year of high school when I was 15, so I'm not going to name that teacher's name, but you know who you are, so thank you. Henry underscore Hiles uh, has asked me, what's your favorite post-workout meal? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I've had a lot over the years, um, and you know what? I have one that I'm actually going to try today that... Um, yeah, you know, I, I, it has components of ones that I've done in the past, um, but I think I'm really going to like this one. Uh, and it's combined with some of the foods that 
Primal Thrive has prescribed. Um, so, I'm going to be doing uh, two strength sessions and two Muay Thai sessions later today. Um, I'm going to be doing a central nervous system based um, strength training, and I'm going to be doing an explosive muscular based strength training. I have pad work, I, I have some well some road work that I'm going to be doing before any of this. Um, and I'm going to have a bit of bag work as well. So, after my most exhausting workout, which will probably be the explosive muscular strength workout, uh, I'm going to really fuel my protein. I'm going to eat a pound of beef liver. Um, I'm going to have two very, very big Japanese sweet potatoes. Now, the Japanese sweet potatoes, for those of you who aren't familiar, they're red on the outside, like almost burgundy, um, and yellow on the inside. Um, they're absolutely delicious. Uh, the way I'm going to prepare those, I'm going to prepare those in the oven. Um, a little bit of sea salt. I'm going to put some olive oil over them afterwards. I'm also going to pair that with some raw cheese. Uh, I picked up some raw cheese up in Seattle. Um, I have a bit of that. I'm going to have Spanish, Italian, and French. Um, so three countries that truly love cheese. Um, the, the liver, by the way, is going to be cooked uh, in ghee butter, um, and it's going to be prepared with a bit of rosemary. Um, I know rosemary is a winter herb, but I use it year-round, so I absolutely love it. Um, a bit of ginger, and a tiny bit of turmeric. Um, I'm also going to have some raw eggs um, in a shake. I, I use Flomotus's Jet Fuels, shout out to Flomotus, so it's four raw eggs, uh, two cups of raw milk, half a cup of raw orange juice, uh, two big scoops of raw honey, and uh, a little bit of raw cream. And I'm going to shake that up, and I'm going to have that with my sweet potatoes, my Japanese sweet potatoes, with my pound of liver, um, uh, with my raw cheese. And for vegetables, I'm going to have some celery, and I'm going to have some beetroots. Uh, I'm getting really fucking hungry <laughs> just uh, talking about that. But um, it's sort of a hodgepodge. I follow them, um, you know, I don't I don't share too much Soul Bras stuff, um, but I really liked Soul Bras cookbook when I first got my hands on it. Uh, Bodybuilder slop recipe is really good, but um, sort of up my game in terms of micronutrition, uh, thanks to Primal Thrive, honestly. Um, with some testosterone boosting. Oh, I'm gonna have a whole raw onion as well. That was good. Yeah. I'm trying. I'm, I, that's that's one meal without giving away too much of what Primal Thrive that I prescribe. Um, but it's a lot of food. I'm a big guy. Um, two, two, twelve, six, one, uh, and I have a lot of work to do. So I'm gonna really need to fuel up. So to recap, one pound of raw liver, two big Japanese sweet potato, a run, one pound, one pound of raw liver cooked with rosemary, ginger, a bit of turmeric, uh, but also some sea salt on that as well. Um, two big Japanese sweet potatoes with olive oil, a raw, raw milk, raw cream, raw egg, raw honey, raw orange juice shake a la Flomotus, um, some raw cheese, and one whole raw onion and some beetroots. Uh, some good stuff. Stone underscore of Mars has asked, how has your experience as an Orthodox Christian affected your fighting career? Much love, man. Well, much love to you too, Stone of Mars. Um, shout out to you, bud. Um, you know, 
the first thing I asked when coming to an Orthodox church, when I was first checking it out, I had two questions. I, I don't even remember what the other one was. I just knew the first one was, can you balance being a fighter in an Orthodox, being an Orthodox Christian? They said, of course, it's a contest. Um, Christianity deals with matters of the soul. You're not maliciously going to be just attacking someone, right? It's an agreed-upon contest. As long as you don't truly hate the person, as long as your heart doesn't get affected negatively by this fight, then no, not at all. Uh, he actually mentioned that when he was a priest down in Los Angeles, that he gave, excuse me, he gave a blessing to Sergei Kovalev, uh, the former light heavyweight Russian champion boxer. He was an Orthodox Christian, of course. He um. He also mentioned, the, the priest rather, he also mentioned that with the matters of the heart, you can be a truly righteous warrior, and you can channel that in the ring, which I really took to heart. This also mirrors some of the negative charged particle stuff I talked about, like you can be engaged in something that's truly full of negative energy, like fighting, but resist it so it doesn't engulf you within. You can grow stronger by listening to these negatively charged particle songs that I share. You can grow stronger by resisting them. You can grow stronger by watching a negatively charged particle in film and learning from it and resisting against it. It's that resistance against negative energy. It's a resistance against darkness that makes you strong. Hell hath no force without fear. So, uh, in terms of how it's affected my career, um, I haven't really changed anything. I, I've never really fought with just being a truly vile, hateful person. Assassin, I, I fight with a very detached mindset. I fight with the assassin mindset, like the straightest line to victory. Um, one of the other things I love, uh, you know, I've been a big fan of Kamaru Usman for a long time. Now people are jumping on the wagon because he beat Masvidal, but I've been a fan for Usman of Usman since early 2017, so four years now actually. Um, I just noticed this fighter who was not screwing up. Um, and when he came on the, honestly, it's a stereotype. When he came on the Joe Rogan podcast, he really won me over even more because he, what he does, I mentioned this on uh, Will Spencer's Renaissance of Men podcast, but right before he goes in the ring, he prays that both of them get out of there, okay, and to get back to their families. But when he steps in there, he says, I'm the Nigerian nightmare. So they're not, no one's pulling any punches here. I'm not, I, I, I'm going to fight to the greatest of my ability because that's agreed upon like that you could potentially get injured with that I could potentially injure you I could potentially cause you brain damage but I'm not hoping that you're you're coming out of there completely pain I'm hoping that we both get out of there okay but I'm also not going to cheat you of the contest you signed we would agree to better ourselves through combat and that's just what we're going to do in terms of my career I mean my career was, has been more hindered by injury and has been more hindered by Uncle Gavin's reign of terror uh, in response to COVID-1984. So it hasn't really affected much of what I do, except I pray more and I train more. So I uh, hope that answers your question. Chandresh21 has asked, I want to learn self-defense and fighting skills. How should I start? Uh, you know, okay, so I mentioned to Bitomas 3 about combat sports. However, um, I want to iterate that combat sports don't always translate well to self-defense. I learned self-defense and bladed combat from 
a Salat expert, which is a martial art native to both Indonesia and Malaysia. And I would say that a lot of the application of combat sports to real life is kind of clumsy, honestly. Um, I would try to find someone who can teach you Salat, honestly. I think that's, that's truly the best self-defense martial art um, in terms of bladed combat. It's really practical. It's really technical. Um, the key differences between combat sports and self-defense is you're aiming for smaller targets. Um, you're not aiming for the, the, the leg, you're not aiming for the temple, like you're aiming for the eyes, the trachea, the, the, the groin, the knees, the, the elbows. You're trying to kind of fuck up the guy. You're trying to you're trying to do some serious damage to get away. Um, this is a real life or death situation. It's different than being in the ring. It just is. Um, if you have a solid grasp of like Muay Thai, boxing, and jujitsu or wrestling, like if you get to that high proficiency, um, then you should be fine. Obviously, obviously you're an experienced martial artist. But if you're looking for that one-stop shop self-defense martial art, I would really try to find someone who teaches a lot and learn from them. Um, if, if, if you're not that pressed for, I would follow the same advice I mentioned. Ran Q1 has asked, what is the difference between classic and modern bodybuilding? So, uh, for those of you who subscribe to, you know, a lot of the, let's, let's you know, I don't want to call it, I don't want to bash anybody. If you're a big Arnold fan, you're a big Arnold fan. Um, there's, there's a lot of pictures of classic bodybuilding in the sphere, and it's pretty aesthetic, obviously. Um, the difference between classic bodybuilding is less precision, more volume, less intensity, to, to, to really sum it up. And in terms of the, the, the aesthetic acquired, it's very, very upper body dominant. You see very few guys in the golden era with like some seriously developed legs. Um, not that a lot of guys are scared of developing their legs too much because they're afraid of grotesquely large legs like, you know, Kai Green or somebody like that. But um, I would say that, you know, the legs are kind of lacking, but you have these very gorgeous aesthetic upper bodies. They do a lot of vacuum exercises too, so you see that rib cage expand and you see the, 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 ab, you see the abdominals. Um, almost sort of tucked in rather than sticking out, which looks very aesthetic, honestly. Um, big emphasis on chest and biceps, not so much on back. Um, but again, it's it's very aesthetic. Um, they have a higher emphasis on volume. The only guy who didn't had more of an emphasis on uh, on intensity was Mike Menser. And if you take a look at Menser all around, um, he has a more dense physique, um, a fuller physique. It looks really good, honestly. So there's two dials you can... Um, you can sort of turn, you can dial up basically when it comes to your bodybuilding. You have volume and you have intensity. Now, guys like Arnold, Franco Colombo, Sergio Oliva, Frank Zane, all these guys, they're more volume guys. Uh, they're in the gym for like five hours, right? You hear like, oh, 30 sets, 30 sets. And unfortunately, that doesn't work if you're not on steroids. Uh, it just doesn't. Um, so the more optimum route, what they found to be the more optimum route to be the future of bodybuilding uh, is intensity. So what Dorian Yates did, um, he took Mike Menser's methodology of just getting everything in an hour as intense as possible and he dialed that up to 11. Uh, this combined with 
Here with Dorian Yates is the first guy who really, really precise with nutrition. Like had a deli scale, you know, weighed all this food. It was just absurdly precise. Um, and Dorian Yates, you know, before him, there was the, the heaviest Mr. Olympia to, to, to win was 245. Um, and then when he finally won in 90, yeah, 90, in 1992, he had like the biggest, or 91, I think, actually. I did, no, I think it was 92, sorry. He had like the biggest, densest physique, like it wasn't even close. Um, and actually, so I had mentioned before in a previous podcast that I, actually my very first podcast that Nasser El Sambati should have won 97 because he was noticeably bigger than Dorian. But apparently what people didn't understand about Dorian from looking at the pictures, and I, I heard this from a bodybuilding coach recently who was at these Mr. Olympias, was that Dorian, with the pictures didn't do it justice, his, his skin was like rice paper thin, so he's absurdly clean. Um, and that was like a big game changer, despite him also being the first mass monster. So the difference in training that sort of dawned modern bodybuilding was this dial-up of intensity, getting everything in an hour and just truly suffering. Um, other bodybuilders would come to Dorian Yates' gym in Birmingham, and they would look at the workout. They, they would train with Dorian. They would look at the workout and say, that's it. And Dorian would say, hey, I'll tell you what. If you want to do something after this, you can. And no one ever did because most people would be, even these are other pro bodybuilders like Chris Cormier, etc. They'd be throwing up their guts uh, at the very end of the workout or in the middle of the workout because it was just so intense. Um, I mentioned this last week, but that optimized routine, uh, I, won't, I won't get into details again of how often of the exact specifics of doing routine, but you got everything within an hour at the highest intensity, with the highest weight possible, by the way. Um, and so that sort of dawned what I consider to be the golden era of bodybuilding, which is the 90s, um, because they were still had aesthetic proportions, but they had this next level size. Um, and then two guys sort of picked, picked up where Dorian left off and just completely ran with it when Dorian got injured at the end of his career. Um, that, of course, being Ronnie Coleman and Jay Cutler. They both still had aesthetic proportions, you know wider upper body than their hips, but still big legs and still dense physiques and a strong cores, big lower backs. Um, those are the two guys who really even took that to another level and they had even greater micronutrition involved, not just the macronutrients that Dorian sort of mastered. Um, and so other guys really couldn't compete with their, with their, um, with their size with aesthetic proportions, so you started seeing them pack on more mass wherever they could, and you started to see a decline in the aesthetics of bodybuilding. Um, Jay Cutler is really the last great aesthetic bodybuilder, and many people think, many people say that his 2009 physique is the greatest ever step on the Olympia stage. So those are the fundamental differences. Um, just next level size, more intensity, more precise nutrition, um, less volume. Um, with modern bodybuilding, like I said, it's taken a dip since Jay retired. Um, there's absurd amounts of size with Big Rami, the current Miss Olympia champion, but it's not very aesthetic. You know, their proportions aren't like Jay Cutler's or Ronnie Coleman's or Dorian Yates or Kevin Lavrone or Chris Cormier or Nasser El Sombati, any of these guys. So that's, to me, what the true golden era is. And those are the key differences in training, nutrition, approach, aesthetics, etc.
Next question for Alex O'Regan 3. Do you chant whilst med meditating? Uh, no, I don't actually. Uh, when I very, the very beginning when I learned how to meditate with my mother, when I was. eight years old, um, we would chant Om or Hue, um, but I found later on that just that didn't really, didn't really serve me, honestly. Um, I, I know it serves some other people, but in my meditation, I don't really feel the need to chant. The last question is from my idiot best friend. Uh, what do you think of optimizing time, like for example, eating and training at the same time? He's referring to a video that I will not release, which is of me eating a pound of salmon while doing rows. Uh, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Well, thank you guys for your questions. Um, I love answering them every time. Uh, please keep them coming. Uh, for finer points about training or writing or metaphysics or meditation or you know, combat sports in general or literature, uh, I'm more than happy to answer them. Another little mini announcement. A lot of you have asked for me to start a TikTok. Now, me being anonymous, I'm obviously not going to have my face in it. I'm not going to have you know, me doing training videos of myself because I like for there, to be, for there to be as little film of me training out there as possible for um, the obvious reasons. I will post some, you know, conditioning stuff with my face blurred out. I will post some, some, uh, you know, some strength stuff with my face blurred out, but I'm actually going to be sort of doing what I would like to call counter-propaganda videos, so, um, I haven't really seen too many of those, I I've been toying with the idea for about three months, um, again, Solbra has the, um, has the, he had the video, it's in program, not the program, so it'd be kind of similar to that, but that was, I think that was in reference to his Lambros thing. Um, this is just really going to be out there to flood cult to flood true culture out there. Um, what is now counterculture and counterpropaganda. Um, a lot of intense masculine sort of video with some pretty awesome music I'll be curating. Uh, actually, Epoch Rising, I think he's the closest in idea, and he's going to jump on it over me. So um, he's sort of inspired me to, well, not really, but he's... He's doing the same thing that I've been thinking about doing for a while. He's absolutely crushing And give him a follow. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Seattle was amazing. Uh, I really needed a rejuvenation. I needed sleep. I needed to connect with some of my roots that were in Seattle, even though I hadn't even been there. Some roots in my life. Um, and yeah. Sort of winging it more this time. Definitely more casual this time. So good night. And good storms. <laughs>